Welcome to PMA Takes on Tech, the podcast that explores the problems, solutions, people, and ideas that are shaping the future of the produce industry. I'm your host, Bonnie Estes, Vice President of Technology for the Produce Marketing Association, and I've spent years in the ag tech sector. So I can attest, it's hard to navigate this ever-changing world in developing and adopting new solutions to industry problems. Thanks for joining us and for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. My goal of the podcast is to outline a problem in the produce industry and then discuss several possible solutions that can be deployed today. This season of PMA Takes on Tech is brought to you by Plenty. Plenty is an indoor vertical farm that sustainably grows produce using less water and land than traditional farming and no pesticides or GMOs. The farm is able to grow peak season, flavorful food year round and deliver fresh produce to its retail partners daily. Plenty's proprietary towers and intelligent platform make it the only vertical farm that can grow multiple crops with consistently superior flavors and yield. On today's podcast, we have two professionals from Wells Fargo to discuss this season's topic, CEA. Why Wells Fargo, you ask? According to top 100 farm lenders, Wells Fargo has been the nation's leading agricultural lender among commercial banks for 25 consecutive years. They bring farm-to-fork expertise to clients in the agribusiness, food, and beverage industries. They provide strategic products designed to mitigate industry-specific risk and provide a full suite of services for businesses of all sizes. I talked to Matt Servatius, market executive for the Central Region and Carol Flynn, sector analyst within food and agribusiness. They give their perspectives as a bank on financing, technology, and where the industry is headed. As we've heard in other episodes, indoor ag is a new industry with an underdeveloped ecosystem. Institutions like Wells Fargo will play a role in the build out and scale up of a successful industry. Let's listen to Matt and Carol. Carol and Matt, welcome to the podcast. Please introduce yourself, a little of your background and your role at Wells Fargo. Carol, why don't we start with you? Great. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for having us. I'm a member of the Food and Agribusiness Industry Advisors at Wells Fargo. We're sort of the special sauce behind Wells Fargo's commitment to the food and ag space. Um, Our role is to provide industry insights and thought leadership and also um, really evaluate risk at both the market level and and at customer and prospect level for all the different sectors of agriculture. Um, We're part of the agribusiness, food, and hospitality division, um, but we really serve the entire bank and uh, very proud to be part of that group. Um, We cover from dairy to food products, um, protein, um, sugar, all of the different sectors, produce, of course. Um, So thank you for having us. Sure. And Matt? Yes, hey, Bonnie, thanks for having us. Uh, Matt Servatius, so gosh, I've been with Wells Fargo for almost 18 years now. I'm based in Denver, Colorado, and I sit in our tech banking group. So I have responsibilities for our tech lending effort for the 20 states in the middle of the country. And then I have national responsibilities for our sustainable tech effort, which 
um, has me covering a lot of the food and, and ag tech companies. So we work with venture back companies up through kind of a large mid corporate profile business. So really span the whole life cycle of these businesses that are going through um, big growth curves. And so Carol and I partner very closely uh, with respect to where tech and, and food and ag are coming together. So great to be with you today. Yeah, I think it's it was really interesting to me to learn. I mean, I bank with Wells Fargo. And so when I think of Wells Fargo, I think of, you know, my checking account. So it's really interesting to hear um, how much you guys are involved in this industry. And you both have really strong backgrounds um, to understand the industry and really help your customers in this space. So I'm excited to to shine some light on uh, some of your thoughts on the uh, controlled environment ag. Um so let's start out with, since you are a financial institution, um, let's talk about some of the financial aspects of CEA. Um, so how do these companies make money if they are making money and, and knowing that there, there are a number of different types of, of companies that are kind of under the CEA umbrella? You know, I would jump in. What I would say is most of them are not making money, um, at least those that we've come across. and. I think the, the biggest driver of that is, is so many of them have not scaled up yet. Um, they're really still in that, that build-out stage. I mean, you, you have some of these long-standing greenhouse players um, that have been around for you know, a decade or plus, and some of those folks are profitable, you know, leveraging existing technology that's been developed over in Europe and utilized for, for years. Um, but the ones you read about really in the controlled environmental ag space um, they're really not making money yet, and, and it really does come down to, to scale. Um, so it'll be interesting to see with time um, how these you know, companies navigate um, growth and the capital requirements to get the scale necessary and how they go about financing those. But um, most that we come across right now are still burning you know, significant amounts of cash. And Matt, yeah. I, I really want to echo that. I, you know, I think it's a super exciting time as we look at this space and as far as their maturity. Um, but that's at this point, we're observing a maturing industry. It's very capital intensive at this time. And when we see the revenue streams, um, it's really exciting to see of the, you know, to see the victories. Um, but they're not at the you know, traditionally bankable level uh, as of yet. So what are some of the issues that are keeping them from making money? Um, you say scale is one, so they're just not getting big enough, but what are some of the other things that are going on that's kind of keeping these, um, I think focusing mostly here in the conversation, we're talking about more the vertical farms and the kind of highly financed farms. I think what you said before the, you know, tomato, the indoor tomato greenhouse space is, is a more mature market and they're doing pretty well. But if we kind of focus here for a minute, just on the, the indoor vertical farms, what's keeping them from making money? You know, I think part of it is, I think a big part is, is the financing at, at the, the local indoor farm level. Um, and I think part of that is because traditional banks like Wells Fargo are looking for cash flow, these companies are in a startup phase. And so we have to risk rate it based off of a cash burning business. And I think a linchpin to getting these things to be more financeable would be true offtake contractual relationships, right? With a Kroger, with a Walmart, uh -huh. right? Where they are going to 
take or pay um, what is delivered to them um, under kind of a produce purchase agreement, something that is contractual. If, if the industry can start moving in that direction and companies can get away with those contractual relationships, all of a sudden you're going to open up debt financing, you know, at the farm level, um, which is an inhibitor to these businesses to scale up, right? They, there's only so much equity capital that can go into these businesses um, before they need debt, right? To really bring down that weighted average cost of capital. So Bright Farms was one that pioneered that early on. And um, I think more proliferation of that will help these businesses become profitable faster. And that's an interesting point because before you have scale, it's difficult to meet those contracts and to win at those contracts. We have, this is a very competitive industry. Um, as we all know, the traditional players are, have already hit a level of maturity and concentration where they have very strong contracts that might be difficult to penetrate. So I fully expect we'll have some conversation as this goes on about partnerships, but, you know, fascinating um, business model to try to disrupt a very mature and well-run, sophisticated, fresh produce complex you know, even you can think of it globally, but if you if you want to look just even at the U.S. on its own, so um, and very nimble. So uh, the controlled environment folks, even just looking at the vertical and indoor, they have a lot of competition that they have to address from the traditional side. Um, so I think that's an important thing to think about. Yeah, I think years ago, many years ago, like 10 years ago, I was working on a project of doing some indoor strawberries um, in a traditional greenhouse. And we talked to a couple of the retailers in the area. This was New Mexico and Texas. And they said, you know, we're not going to we're not going to commit to buy anything from you, because if we do that, we have to. Um, tell our other suppliers that we're not going to buy from them. And we were only going to supply for just the winter months. And so they said, we're, you know, we can't do that. So I think you've got a lot of these traditional relationships that you're, you're trying to break into. But I think going forward with some of these crops, you know, starting with leafy greens and then moving into other crops, these indoor ag companies can do, should be able to do good take or pays because they can guarantee supply throughout the year that's going to be very consistent. You know, they're not going to get hit by a hailstorm. They're not going to have a lot of the issues that outdoor has. So it'll be interesting to see as the market matures, if those take or pay contracts, you know, end up being the norm. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about debt financing and some of the, the financing models. And um, so what financing models do you think are working in the industry? You mentioned Bright Farms and which ones are not. Is the VC investment with high valuations the right way to go? Um, or are there other models that even some of these big guys should start looking at? You know, I, I think, you know, the equity financing, right, is the right model for now um, to start. But I, I think the type of investor is really important. I, I think the traditional venture capitalist here is um, not going to be as active as the investors you see that are active, right? It's the larger sovereign funds, it's family offices, it's corporate venture arms that are looking at it beyond just the financial return of that investment. Um, but for other reasons, that the patient investor, I think, is going to be really critical. And, and you see those players being, in my view, the most active. Um, one, because they can write big checks, 
because they, they don't have that same investment horizon that traditional VCs do. You do see some of the pure play VCs um, around this, but um, you know, I, I come from the clean tech uh, background and, and a lot of that venture community got blown out because they underappreciated the capital requirements uh, required in the solar system back in 2010 through you know 2014. So um, equity financing is the right play. It's just it's making sure you have the right investor lineup that, that understands the long game here versus the short term return. Yeah, I think um, I I was with you in the whole clean tech um, roller coaster ride. Um, and one of the things that that we saw there was the need for really capital intense businesses and the need to really, you know, a lot of the projects I work on, they really needed project financing and it wasn't available because it was too early, but it was too late for VC. And so do you, how do you see project financing, you know, might pay, play a role in this once things are a little more proven out? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and part of the financing that was available was government financing, right? DOE loan guarantees that took, you know, <laughs> say a long time would be an understatement, a long time to get <laughs> that capital. And uh, we don't do a lot of USDA loan guarantees, to my knowledge. But if, if those mechanisms were more readily available, I, I think that could really, really help things out here. Um, I think it's it's a net positive that um, these companies are not reliant upon subsidies as we found in solar and wind, right? You don't get that whipsaw effect. If is the, is that investment tax credit going to be, you know, renewed or extended things of that sort. Um, so, you know, government financing programs, if they could be more readily available and more rapidly deployable, I think that could be a, a real net positive here. One of the things I've seen in um, other industries as well is sometimes the the first generation of these companies aren't the ones that then go on and be successful. It's kind of the the generation that comes after them. Um, And not that you have a crystal ball any more than anyone else does, but um, just what's your sense on, you know, do you think these first large, first of a kind companies are going to be the ones that are going to take this technology into the future? Or do you think it's going to be the second generation that comes behind them with, with new technologies? I, I probably can start with that. I'm not sure that these are first generations. Some of the first generations might be the big greenhouse and efforts of previous traditional corporate players that started something and closed it because of uh, either some operational situation they found was more challenging. I, proven out is what I heard you say, you know, in the previous commentary. And I, you know, I think that we're learning as we're going. Um, I don't know what the time frame is, but I think it's going to be quicker than we think that they're going to learn about, um, you know, how to uh, set controls in these buildings, how to work with lighting, how to manage labor. I think this is a different type of labor force. Um, There's oftentimes the same heading um, that a traditional player might work with with their operational risks but we're just they're discovering in high fast forward motion and um i you know i'm i think that the current players learn from those past experiences and again partners matter yeah i agree with that and 
And I think you're going to, you know, it's very, it's somewhat fragmented right now and regionalized, but I think you're going to see more consolidators too, right? To help drive that scale. And I, it's like, I'm doing PR for Bright Farms. I'm not intending to, but, um, you know, Koch just acquired them outright, right? They led in equity financing for them. Um, and, and there's others where I, I think you're going to see more consolidation with some of these bigger players that will help drive scale, will help drive access to financing as well. And so I do think some of these early drivers of these technologies um, and platforms, you know, are going to get consolidated, you know, maybe at a state level, you know, Western region level, et cetera. So uh, moving on, just thinking about the effect that this will have, um, how do you think or how are you hearing that outdoor growers are responding to um, indoor ag? Do, do they see it as a threat or do they see it as part of the whole industry? Or, you know, what are you hearing from from some of your customers that grow outside? We're, we're hearing, I mean, it, Customers are always going to look at what's supposed to be disruptive as almost competitive in nature. And that always drives innovation. I'm seeing more and more partnership. I think there's a lot of discussion going on in the back, in the back of maybe what we see. Um, And there's going to be the, the winners are going to find winning new, um, new ways to win i the certainly these the current industry the cea industry is driving automation is driving innovation faster than we would have done without it so um i i really believe it's going to be positive all around for the industry yeah it it seems very complimentary to me right i mean i mean you know cea is not going to replace outdoor growing with the amount of mouths we have to feed right and and it just it does seem like a part of this solution and and you're seeing you know these players you know driscoll's and others you know coming in to equity rounds with a plenty or others right to get under the hood a little bit and those you know driscoll's you know named the big specialty produce company you know, could ultimately be acquirers, you know, natural acquirers of these business. I, I just think it's a part of the equation. I don't think it's the only equation. Yeah, I think, you know, they they run the entire supply chain and they know how this all works. And so I, I think um, they're looking at the industry and thinking about how should I be involved? I was at the Western Growers annual meeting um, recently and Bruce Taylor was talking about vertical farms and kind of, you know, people were asking him, what do you think? And, and they made an acquisition and the story that he tells, since he told this publicly, I think I can tell it publicly, but, um, was he said that he went to visit Arrow Farms very early on. And he said, I walked in there and there were nine Cornell PhDs working, um, you know, at Arrow Farms. And I thought to myself, do I have nine, you know, PhDs working for me? And so he thought, I, I, I can't build this myself, but I see that this is an important industry to be in. And so that, you know, they made an acquisition into it. And and so I think a number of companies are thinking about that, you know, sticking their toe in and thinking, you know, we've got, especially here in California, you know, we're, we're going to have problems with water. It's going to have an effect on production here. And so how, how do you just de-risk, you know, by growing someplace else or, or, you know, not using as much water in a situation of growing inside. So I think there's a lot of, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out, you know, with the outdoor growers. Um, 
I have a, another um, additional thing to add there. I really believe we the traditional ag has some nimbleness that perhaps the indoor and capital intensive structure doesn't have. So it, I don't believe one is going to replace the other. So when we see a very expensive field of leafy greens being um, you know, cultivated, plowed under because the market changed. Um, that's a nimbleness, even though it looks very um, profound, it's a nimbleness that may not be available if you've contracted under lights and in a, you know, in a structure. So um, I think there's going to be room for both. Um, and, and nimbleness doesn't just mean the, the newer model. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that because there are things that you have the ability to do when you're growing outside that you don't when you have structure that you're paying all these costs, whether you're growing something or not. Right. So, and market yeah. risk is one of the things we really look at. And, and so we'll see how this plays out. Yeah. So everybody's favorite topic this day, these days is supply chain. It's the reason, it's the fault of everything. Um, so what are you hearing about supply chain issues and how is this impacting indoor ag, positive or negative? Do they have a leg up on that or is it more of an issue for them? I'm not sure we're at the scale where we can really see it. Of course, we can expect that transportation when you're closer to the end user transportation might be slightly improved um, some pricing might be slightly improved um, but I you know and I some of the supply chain is about like you mentioned earlier or you mentioned on your questions which was about packaging both sides are going to be impacted by that by the cost of resin or the availability of um, you know pre-made packaging it, it I, I'm not sure we see a, a clear winner on that one either. And the scale isn't there for us to, to really know. Maybe maybe three years from now, we'll, we'll have a better feel for that. Right. And, and, and anecdotally, I think that's right. Anecdotally, one would think that they would have, they'd be insulated perhaps a little bit more because the inputs are far less, right, to, to grow and, and yield at this similar amount of crop. Um, but certainly they're falling victim to the, the shortage of skilled labor uh, as well, right? I think every sector has been impacted that um, dramatically, you know, through through this pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I think the one advantage is going to be if you're if you're closer to your market, um, you know. So that's the one advantage of indoor, I think. But there's, like you said, there all the other shortages are going to hit them as well. Right. But, but perhaps, you know, then thinking about what, what else do they need? Well, they need, they need warehousing space to grow, right? And they want to be in the metros close to the urban areas. So presumably, I don't have anything empirical to point to, but presumably there's going to be space, you know, in those metros available, right? As we're all working from home and in more hybrid environments, that there could be a, a, a net positive in terms of securing space at lease rates that are more attractive than they would have been three or four years ago. Very cool. So, uh, Carol, you touched on this, touched on this a little bit, but um, do you think that technology that we've learned from indoor ag will translate to the field? Do you see different technology, just learnings and understanding how to grow and that sort of thing? Do you think that will translate to the field? I absolutely do. I think actually the learnings are happening both ways, um, especially as these partnerships that we mentioned earlier between the traditional and the new start to share. Um, 
it, you know, Bruce Taylor may um, tip his hat to eight Cornell PhDs, but those eight Cornell PhDs were probably telling the same story back at their dinner table that they met Bruce Taylor. Yeah, um, good point. <laughs> so uh, because of his experience and because of access to the experience on his staff, and he's been hiring um, very smart people for a very long time that have a different skill set. Um, so, but I'm, you know, I think about automation and breeding, uh, water usage, um, the, the fertility issues around these really highly specialized crops and, and lighting, of course, but um, yeah, I think it's going to go both ways. Absolutely. And, and they're starting to share some of the same innovators that are, uh, you know, have been key players in the traditional space are consulting with the new innovators both ways. It's really, um, it, it's been fascinating from an industry perspective. And taking the contrarian view, it, it would almost seem because of the variables that are out of the outdoor growers control that you have to be more innovative in the outdoor field than you do in the indoor to a certain degree, right? Well, when there is a, some kind of pest outbreak in an indoor facility, I think um, some really smart entomologists that have seen it all before might be the right one to bring into the into the picture. So, um, I mean, I'm always thinking of it from the field per perspective and from a historical perspective as a farmer. Um, I want the best people at the table no matter what. No doubt. Yeah. So why are big ag tech companies paying attention to this space? What are their interests? I think their interest follows the money, right? And I think, you know, consumers more and more are, you know, demanding um, better tasting produce. I think they're looking for produce that can be delivered um, nearly same day, right? I think we're not far away from that. Um, and I think the grocers um, are, are looking at this because it's generally, I think, higher margin for them, which leads to more ancillary sale when you're buying that, you know, special herb that, you know, some indoor grower grew um, and you're going to have a nice meal with a nice bottle of wine that you buy in that same grocer. So um, I, I think the bigger ag tech companies see the dollar signs around it and the consumer, you know, is driving that um, is at least what I'm seeing and hearing. Mm -hmm. I think the big ag tech companies are paying attention, um, just as you say, Matt, to the consumers. Consumers are really fickle. They're, they say one thing and they do something else with their behavior. And so, um, you know, if, they're, if an ag tech company's end user um, is in a traditional player or an innovator, they still are driven by the consumer. So it, the more those ag tech companies can see what's happening with that end product, um, the, it, it's it's going to elevate their opportunity to you know grow their own, either develop their own ag tech um, strategy or to develop their marketing strategy. Yeah. What's the impact of food inflation? Food inflation is the um, $60 million question. Maybe it's billions of dollars probably, add some zeros to that. Um, I think the important thing here is to recognize that 
you have to segment it. it overall food inflation might be four to eight percent and it might be pushing even higher than eight percent but it, but you look at the segments that are growing um, dairy prices have not increased at all in case in fact they're they're falling the the fats the meats have been going up around the 10 percent mark that's you have to look at what's what part of food inflation does the fresh produce or the products that are grown in these special indoor environments take? Um, what will the market bear a two to 5% increase in produce sales? It certainly looks like it from the retail numbers that we see from Nielsen. Um, I don't have a view on the food service as much. I suspect the market will bear more there. Um, will the will food inflation allow and give an opportunity to innovators to charge more? Um, perhaps is it shifting the American um, sort of an American tolerance for higher prices? Maybe. Um, I just I think we have to details matter. And uh, food inflation is there's an element being driven by port congestion and supply chain. Um, but we might be just in the middle of a, a greater shift for higher prices. Um, that's probably positive for the indoor ag folks. Yeah. Well Matt, anything to add that? Nope. She captured it. Yep. <laughs> so why does packaging matter? I, I'm also going to try on that one. I think packaging matters because consumers are being purposeful with what they, um, for a number of reasons on packaging. It's, um, they want packaging that, that's environmentally sustainable. They want packaging that is, helps them have a sense of comfort with food safety. Um, but packaging matters because it costs money and it, uh, it costs money not just in creating and just not the, the price per package, but how does it transport? How's it, how does it how does it work? What's its function? Um, so we're looking at all of those things. And I think both tradition, I mean, it's been an incredible evolution of the retail space and food service space in packaging of these types of products that are grown. Um, but we're going to really have to watch cost and watch how consumers see the environmental uh, impact of packaging. Well, and, you know, I know this has been talked over the years, you know, is there a new standard um, around produce that's, you know, in the controlled environmental ag environment with no pesticides and 90% less water? And is there a standard, you know, complementary or above organic, right? The consumers start looking for. I, I know, you know, early days, folks in the CEA industry were, were exploring that. I don't know how much traction that's gotten, if any at all, but um, yeah, it matters, right? We all know the, the ESG, uh, tailwinds are more important than ever right now to a lot of consumers. And so the packaging and the brand that people are sourcing from becomes that much more important. To finish up, thank you guys so much for being on. And I have one last question for you. And Carol, let's start with you. What? How do you think the CEA industry is going to look in, in five to 10 years from now? What, where do you see the growth? What's it going to look like? I think, as I've talked about throughout this discussion, I think we're going to see some really interesting partnerships, um, a much more mature 
mature industry. I, I think the consumer is going to perhaps recognize the difference between indoor and traditionally grown products, but branding is going to mean more than ever. Um, uh, consumers really want to know who stands behind these products will continue to serve um, nutritious and beautiful produce across um, the U.S. and, and uh, around the world. So very excited about the next steps. Great. Matt, how about you? What's the industry going to look like? Yeah, I, I think I, I think you're going to see a lot more consolidation. I, I think the partnerships will be key. I think you're going to see real estate investment trusts, REITs, looking to make investments here in a much bigger way when they can lock down, you know, a sticky tenant that's got a 10-year lease um, to where they'll actually invest, right, in some of those tenant improvements to, to lock in that tenant, you know, occupying a million square feet to, to grow produce. So partnerships are going to be big, but I, I think you're going to start to see a lot of these CEA players become divisions of the biggest food and ag companies globally. That's it for this episode of PMA Takes on Tech. Thanks for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. Be sure to check out all our episodes at pma.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and I would love to get any comments or suggestions of what you might want me to take on. For now, stay safe, eat your fruits and vegetables, and we will see you next time.